Then his agent, David O'Hagan, was a pitcher at Stanford, so he's in California. Then they're working with guys in Driveline in Seattle. So all of this happening over Zoom, he basically reinvented his curveball. He threw a more, much more low-efficient slider off of it, changed his repertoire week to week to week based on what he was getting out of these Zoom calls. And, and it's insane to me because... As Kylie mentioned, this is someone that wasn't on anyone's radar, but really has been self-made because of these videos and the fact that he's using the technology in a very interesting time. All right, welcome back to the 90th percentile. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I'm back for another week. We've been off for a few. We've got a lot going on in the baseball world. I had to catch up on all the trades, all the updates, etc. We've been out here in spring training for about a week now, uh, taking in some games. But I'm happy to be back on the pod and I have a couple of good friends of mine uh, joining me. One is David O'Hagan, uh, agent from XL Sports Management, as well as uh, Nathaniel Plotz, which you may know from Twitter, formerly with me at Prospects Live. He also works there at XL. Welcome to the pod, guys. How are you? Good. How about you? Doing well. Doing well, man. Um, well, I wanted to get into this a little bit because I thought it would be interesting. You know, we've had coaches on. We've had trainers on. We've had players on. I thought it would be interesting to get some perspective more from the agency side. And, you know, I understand that you guys run a lot of the communication between a lot of these parties. Um, and you're also an agency that is, you know, extremely well-versed in tech. You leverage it, you use it to help uh, your clients. And I thought getting some of that firsthand insight would be valuable for our listeners. So I wanted to kick it over to David first. Um, David, if you don't know, has a baseball background. Pitched at Stanford, one of my favorite programs out there out west. You know, I'm a West Coast baseball guy myself, um, and got into the business. So I want to talk a little bit about how you got into the business and sort of what your focus is um, in terms of the clients that you go after and really how you identify them. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, so when I was growing up, my my dad uh, for a long time uh, represented coaches in, in various sports. So I believe his his first client was. Uh, Coach Sean Wooden, uh, the legendary UCLA basketball coach. So uh, he also worked with a uh, just a really deep uh, group of coaches, including like Steve Mariucci, Tom Coughlin, um, and Mike Leach, who you know we've all become really close with. So uh, starting in you know high school, uh, we would my brother and I would travel around with him and go to various bowl games or you know, go visit Coach Wooden in California. And we just kind of were exposed to, you know, really high pressure, high octane sports, you know, up up close and personal. And uh, got a good idea as to what the routine was like. So I don't know if I committed to, uh, you know, wanting to work in this space at the time, but uh, when the playing days uh, wrapped up, I, I figured I wanted to work in baseball and, and felt like, uh you know, the agency side was a good place to, uh, to start. I think a lot of that was because of the, the familiarity and the routine and, you know, how, how all that works. Um, as far as where I started kind of really getting interested in player development and, um, you know, how baseball was modernizing. I know you had a guest on a few weeks ago named Tom house. Um, when I was, uh, in college, a couple of my teammates took a trip down to San Diego to work with Tom house. And obviously Tom has been, um, 
way out ahead of, you know, a lot of these different things as they've evolved over time. You know, I think I learned on in your conversation with him that he was, you know, doing motion capture stuff with like Nolan Ryan, which, you know, Nate and I would, would you know, geek out over something like that. That sounds <laughs> pretty fun. But the, the players came back from uh, their weekend with Tom House with a bunch of different drills and stuff like that. And, you know, I was like, okay, this is, this is different. You know, they're doing things that seem to be a little bit more scientific. And then uh, two months later, we played USC and the Friday night starting pitcher was probably the most famous Tom House protege at that time. Mark Pryor, and I remember, and I still talk to even Sam Fold about this, like that was like the first time I think I saw like a really explosive, like invisible, like up close in person. Um, it was one of those things where you couldn't tell how hard Mark Pryor was throwing unless you saw the hitter swing at the pitch. So the first, you know, two or three pitches of the game, I remember thinking – you know, oh, that it's not so bad. It's it's not so bad. And then, you know, I think it probably was Sam when Sam swung at the first, you know, chest high fastball. I realized, wow, that's that's a lot different than anything else I've ever seen. And I know if we, you know, went back and tried to reverse engineer, you know, what the metrics looked like on on his fastball and all of his pitches, just with the delivery and the release, you know, I'm. I'm hundred percent confident he was doing some things that would stand out, you know, even today. So, well, I think that's one of the, the, the things about analytics and you know, I'm older, I'm 40 years old. So I've seen a lot of, a lot of ball players uh, over the years. And it's one of those things I go back to, like you said, Nolan Ryan, like the motion capture on Nolan Ryan. And I always thought, I think when my conversation, I mentioned it too, like it was remarkable that somebody that like, to me kind of signifies the old school as much as Nolan Ryan does the attitude you know, the Texas flamethrower, the stoic look on the mound. And, you know, he was willing to get better and utilize some of this stuff and was open to it. Um, and then the other part of it is going back and looking at some guys we didn't have Trackman on or Hawkeye on. That it's like, how special was that? Because you know those guys were outliers. And I think it would be, if we had the ability to do that, I think maybe one day we will, you know, be able to re like reverse engineer that and actually be able to like, put like long time historical comps, you know, yeah. current it's, prospects. That'd be really interesting. It's funny you say that because um, Gage Jump made his first, uh, you know, had his first college outing the other day. And Nate, who's, you know, not only very smart, but also very creative, started circulating at an old black and white picture of Sandy Koufax with, you know, it looked like, I don't know, 1159 spin direction. I got that. <laughs> another another guy that really uh, kind of helped us all out along the way, especially when we were in college, he now works for the Los Angeles Dodgers, a guy by the name of Tom Kunis. This, this fascinates me just thinking about this now. So back in the early 2000s, he used to have this saying that, and it's brilliant. If you think about it, if he, he would say that if a guy was a big hand finish guy, that their fastball wouldn't play. 
And I guess what he meant by that is like if the hitter sees a big hand, like the pitch is going to play down. And then if the hand was small, the fastball was more explosive. Mm -hmm. And if you apply what people know now, as far as like even thinking about spin efficiency, I think what he was describing was like spin efficiency, because if you naturally kind of look at your hand, if you release the ball and your hand's big, it's kind of like a more supinated position. Mm -hmm. And if you pronate a little bit more, which would create probably higher spin efficiency, your hand's going to look smaller. And I, I remember when he was kind of explaining to us, like, how that was the thing and how that worked, like looking back on it. I mean, it just shows you that there's guys like Tom house or Tom Kunis. And I guess they don't all have to be named Tom, but there are certain coaches that have a way of, you know, looking at the game. Like last thing I'll say about Stanford, um, you know, coach Dean Stotts, who was, you know, incredible as far as like building up the program. Um, and his ability to, you know, find players like all across the country uh, was unreal. I mean, great teams. You know, he we never had a radar gun, even though they were available, like, ever at, at practice and inner squads or anything. And his whole thing was, like, the hitter will let you know how good your stuff is. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as we've seen kind of the explosion of all this other stuff that people, you know, like to reference or look at, um, if you're a very good coach, if you're like a Tom house or like a Dean Stotts or a Tom Kunis, and you look at the game a certain way, like, yeah, I, I don't think you need 9 million gadgets at practice to like, you know, improve the players. Like we've seen that simple is probably better, but you know, it just seems like those coaches are really hard to find. And if you look at good major league organizations, the success they have is not necessarily measured in how many edutronic cameras they have. It's more about how they communicate with the players and also within the organization. And I wanted to uh, rope, rope uh, Nathan here too, because we haven't talked to him much, <laughs> but you know, Nate has a, you know, analytical background. He has a, you, mentioned his creativity and just in terms of how he looks at the game, it's adjusted sort of my lenses. Um, and I've learned a ton from him. So I want to kick it over to you and sort of how you got into this and how you leverage technology um, to help the agency to make better decisions in terms of who you go after, but also, you know, the assistance and the help that you guys provide for clients. Yeah. Um, definitely a different uh, background than David for sure. Um, so, I mean, I played baseball throughout my life. And uh, my playing days stopped in high school. So kind of my playing days stopping coincided with StatCast becoming, you know, a huge phenomenon, like among baseball Twitter. It seemed like everyone was talking about, you know, spin rate, uh, you know, you name it. And it's kind of funny just to think about how, you know, the, the discourse has evolved since then. Um, but, you know, going into college, I, I already knew, you know, right away, as soon as that had become pretty prevalent, like I was really attracted to that because I always had been kind of attracted uh, to numbers and, and kind of intertwining those into sports and, and having, a, you know, a huge data set available um, 
to perform analysis on, you know, kind of opened my eyes to, you know, the possibilities of working in baseball, you know, seeing um, more and more people getting hired who were using and utilizing, um, you know, data coming straight off of like baseball savant and writing, you know, phenomenal blogs, read many blogs, you know, fan graphs, uh, baseball perspectives, baseball America, um, you know, you name it. Um, so while that was going on, I've also like always been extremely interested in the amateur side of baseball and, you know, follow the draft for, you know, quite some time. Um, and this was the 2020 draft. So right when kind of COVID had like put a halt uh, to the college season and, and the high school season, and there wasn't, you know, obviously any live games going on. So I kind of, you know, that, that season overall and kind of that period in time between like March of 2020 and, um, you know, June and July uh, when the draft was really kicking off. Um, I started kind of applying some of the stuff I've been reading about and, and looking at on the MLB side to, you know, college and high school players. Like, you know, I'd been reading more about, you know, fastball shape and what fastballs um, tend to produce the best results and what, what do good fastballs look like mechanically and starting to, you know, say, okay, this pitcher here has really good fastball characteristics. Look at what similar fastballs do at the big league level. Um, so that, I mean, that's where I really started meeting more people. I think that's where I met Jeff. Um, and actually right after the draft is when I met David, um, and we kind of, David and I had just kind of, you know, started talking. We realized we had a lot of shared interest in, in you know, tech and, and kind of, you know, how baseball is modernizing. And um, we sort of continued on that relationship up through the fall. And then that next spring, I, I got a, a job working for the White Sox in their uh, amateur scouting department, where I was primarily uh, focused on, um, interpreting like TrackMan numbers, but also, you know, applying, you know, some of the video analysis to, um, to try to, you know, tie, tie those two things together. So that was a really cool experience, getting to experience, um, you know, the draft from the other side, um, and definitely learned a lot of cool stuff, worked with a lot of new information that helped form different opinions that, um, you know, I didn't previously hold, but after the draft, you know, I'd been continuing to talk to David uh, all throughout um, that season and that spring. And we kind of realized that, you know, it'd be a great opportunity to sort of, you know, link up and and take some of the stuff we've been talking about and apply it um, to the agency side. So since September, I've been working for Excel and, um, you know, it's been phenomenal the amount of like buy-in, you know, we've had and some of the stuff we've been doing from the agents and the players. And, um, you know, I think it's been really cool to sort of just utilize this, you know, from a few different perspectives, like one probably being like acquisitions or, you know, evaluation, like trying to figure out, okay, like what minor leaguers look good, you know, what high schoolers, college players, you know, um, just because that sort of added a new, um, you know, new kind of challenge to how I've been like evaluating players just because, you know, there's pretty big difference between evaluating, say, you know, a 16 year old in high school versus a 22 year old in double A. Um, 
but yeah, so I mean, we've been attacking it on that front, uh, player development, you know, looking at different pieces of information and how we can get our players better, um, which has also been a, re a really unique experience talking to different players um, and have seen great buy-in on that front as well. Um, but yeah, it's been, it, it's definitely been a great experience um, for sure. Well, I think, I think that, sort of segues nicely into like the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is how analytics has impacted player representation. Um, baseball is a heavily traditionalist game. Um, over the last couple of years, that's really been chipped away at. I mean, there's been, you know, cracks in that foundation for a little bit, but it seems like a lot of that old school mentality has started to crumble a little bit. But 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. And I know it's one thing that like Tom House had talked about is how other sports like tennis have been embracing motion technology since the late seventies, you know? Um, and I thought it was interesting because it's a sport where like baseball in a sense, where it's very like individually performance based, like you need to take care of what you do well, right. In order to fit into the team concept. So I'm interested in terms of like what's changed and maybe David can, can give us some insight here. What's changed over the last 10 to like 15 years as we've accelerated even more so into, you know, all the different things that analytics can combine uh, or provide. I mean, it's a, a wide spectrum. Yeah, I think first, um, everything in the game of baseball on the business side, although we are coming out of a lockout, so this might sound um, puzzling. Everything on the business side, for the most part, has been uh, or become more efficient uh, and more people are learning how to use the information to make decisions about their team, their roster, and then how they're going to compensate skills. And so, you know, I, I want to say when I first got into this um, and throughout the years, I do remember somewhat early on watching Carlos Rodon as a freshman pitching the, you know, super regional or whatever it was and just being like, Oh, that guy looks really good. So I think last time we discussed this, I think I used a space analogy. Uh, I forget exactly what it was, but I'll try again. Um, I kind of look at it all like um, the solar system, you know, like at first when there was certain technologies, they identified that there's a certain number of planets and then they figured out how far apart they were from each other and all those things. And I think the newest technology is just allowing us to find, you know, moons that are circling different planets and minerals on Mars and how much water, you know, it's just more information. And, and the good, the good news is a lot of it is like, you know, producing like objective results that mm -hmm. we can then, you know, use to factor into uh, decision-making and, you know, conversations about uh, how to support player values and stuff like that. Um, but the most important thing, and this is something that, you know, Nate does such a great job with in general, is you kind of have to have a level of, of passion uh, and then idea generation. And, you know, I think uh, a humbleness about you to recognize that, even though there's a lot of different objective markers that we can go track down, it doesn't mean one thing is right 
or one thing is wrong. You have to look at all these different things and how they interplay with each other to come up with a very simple game plan moving forward for the player. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess you would say you do a little bit more of the player valuation stuff. You could do that all day long, um, you know, behind the scenes. But then when you're trying to enact or create an, an environment to improve with the player, you have to, uh, you know, be very good about communicating with the player. And you really, you know, I, I mean, I guess like if you look at, um, we could use a pretty simple example, I guess, with like Rap Soto. So, you know, for a certain type of fastball, vertical movement might be extremely important. Well, I think during the coronavirus, a lot of players went out and, you know, worked on their pitches and all these different things, um, you know, on units like Rapsodo and gyms, whatever. And players now, you know, throughout the game have a really good understanding of like what their arsenal looks like on Rapsodo. Well, if you're focused on one thing without taking into consideration, you know, other things which would affect the performance of that fastball, and, and let's say you're focused on vertical movement alone, you know, you might do some things to your delivery or the way that you release the ball, which might give you one or two more inches of lift, but you might be adding inches to your release height. You know, you might not be moving as efficiently. Maybe your humerus isn't lined up with your torso as far as rotation goes. And you might end up, you know, having more vertical movement, but having a worse fastball because it's not as fast, the release height's higher, and your arm's now getting sore because you're not used to throwing that way. So I think, like, while all this information is very good, it takes, like, the most important aspect of it is the people that are in the middle taking that objective information you know, determining what's most important, discussing it with the player and making sure that the player is on the right track. You know, while we're talking about Rapsodo, like I think, do you guys know how many numbers does Rapsodo put on the screen for the player to look at? Eight, nine, ten different numbers. So yeah, the player can the player can see all those things every time they throw a pitch. Mm-hmm. They might latch on to one or two things that they want to work on as agents or as, you know, people that are protecting the players and helping them. I think it's our responsibility for the listeners that don't know, there's something called a CSV, which is like the underlying output, you know, of the Rapsodo or the Trackman session or whatever it is. And it has, if the Rapsodo spits out nine or 10, you know, measurements on the screen, there are probably 35 columns, you know, in the CSV. So I think we look at it as we have a responsibility to understand how all 35 columns impact the operation. And that's kind of just, you know, the tip of the iceberg because I now feel like we have a greater responsibility to understand how these players are moving. So now like somebody – 
Wise once told me, you know, baseball has been very slow, like the uh, process of moving from what's happening with the ball in space, which can be, you know, calculated by simple physics with velocity, launch angle, you know, all those different things. It's slowly moving from what's happening with the ball all the way back to the brain. And I think, you know, we feel like we bear a responsibility to have a really deep understanding of all this stuff so that we can make sure that our clients are on the right track and they're not, you know, and they're focused on productive things and not, you know, trying to tweak things that might, might not be good for them. Well, I think that's, that's part of what the issue is with the numbers, right? Is it's a double-edged sword. So people will have like this very rudimentary understanding of like, this portion of it or this portion of it and they'll latch on to something and then they'll miss another guy that maybe doesn't fall within those boxes he doesn't have a high ivp or whatever and then they don't realize yeah but he's got a 59 inch release height you know it's coming from out here and it's still able to generate velocity like a, a william kempner or something like that and then you know they think it's a sinker right and it's not um so you know i think i think with that said i wanted to kick it over to to, to nate like in terms of when we look at different metrics, right? We can't take a one size fits all approach to pitchers. So are there certain metrics that are more important to certain types of pitchers than others? So let's say we have a guy that's, you know, heavy cut, right? Or a guy that's a, that's a, 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 a pronator that has really high spin efficiency or a guy who throws sinkers from up here. Like there's all these different measures but there's a, a roadway if they have enough talent, enough arm talent to sort of get to where they need to be as, you know, productive major leaguers. Peyton, Peyton, Man Peyton Manning would blow you up for the use of the word arm or the, the phrase arm talent there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it really is an interplay between a whole lot of different metrics. Um, you know, I think this there's actually a really good example of like a player um, who our company represents that we talked to um, who was told by his team that, you know, he had to increase his vertical movement um, on his fastball to be more successful. And David, myself and, and, you know, a few other people were looking at it and said, well, you know, it's not just vertical movement that creates that carry that you're trying to you know create there are many different factors so this guy also throws you know over 97 miles an hour so he's elite velocity and he's a low release height so we looked at it and said well you know you get more vertical movement than you know jacob de jacob de does not get you know better it's, it's right around average, maybe slightly below average vertical movement, but his fastball is really successful. Our guy got more vertical movement than Scherzer. You know, again, less vertical movement than average. Um, but when you look at it, like it's an interplay between multiple different metrics, you know, when you're throwing 97, 98 with a low release height, you need less vertical movement than someone does who's throwing you know, 91 with, you know, a generic release type thing. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of like a segue into how we've like started thinking about at least fastballs. Um, 
in trying to really simplify like the way that we go about it. Um, just thinking in terms of velocity, movement, and release. So if you have at least, um, at least from what we've looked at, two out of three of those characteristics, typically a fastball is going to be effective. Like thinking about DeGrom, like throwing, you know, 101, whatever it is, like the fastest velo for a starting pitcher in baseball. Checks that box easily. Then you go release height. Well, he is a you know five five four release height, you know out outlierish low release height, outlier velocity, and you know his vertical move you know induced vertical breaks 15, 16 inches, so slightly below average, right around average. So he doesn't even have all three of those markers, albeit like his velocity, and that's probably the most important of those three, is so outlier that it doesn't even matter that he doesn't have all three. But it's kind of an example of how it's definitely more than just let's maximize carry. Like, I, I, you know, I remember seeing this, you know, quite a bit from quite a lot of people who, you know, are looking at pitchers throwing, you know, 87 miles an hour with 20 to 22 inches of vertical break and saying, okay, here you have a rise ball. When, you know, and this pitcher I'm thinking of in particular has a release height that's you know, one of the highest in baseball, when you think about the actual angle of the pitch coming out of his hand, it's really steeper than almost any other four-seam fastball, which that's the exact opposite effect of what you think would happen with a rise ball. A rise ball would stay flatter. Um, but again, it's an example like the velocity and the release go into creating the shape too. So that's something that we like talked about for a while and has definitely gone into you know player development calls and also like us just you know evaluating players like we're not gonna look at a player and say well this guy's arm slot is you know low three quarters you can't get 20 inches of bird on that like let's move on to someone else like again it's there could be some really interesting stuff going on there like we know that you know certain teams right away a guy with a sidearm release will pop in their model like we know you know you know the select teams out there who value those traits so i mean it's kind of looking at a whole wide variety of numbers i think has been really beneficial for us and i mean you could you could shift that to even breaking stuff few change-ups i mean the whole slider the slider discourse has been really interesting how you know i remember like when i was really first getting into like looking at the pitch metrics like what was really, really in at the time was the gyro slider. So like, you know, kids were posting their Rapsodo clips and, you know, 5% spin efficiency sliders um, were really, you know, were really desired. And it, it's just interesting how now it's maybe more about, well, gyro sliders could be really good, but let's look at the velocity with the slide. Like it's looking at more than one thing, you know, if you're throwing an 80 mile an hour slider, maybe it's more beneficial to have sweep. If you're throwing, uh, you know, if you can't necessarily supinate as well as someone else, maybe it's, you know, try to throw your slider harder and throw a lower spin efficiency slider. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's taking kind of all these concepts, like simplifying it, like those three characteristics that, you know, we've started talking about in the fastball and kind of have that drive a lot of the conversations we're having in different 
you know, fields, whether it's evaluating uh, player development or, you know, even uh, negotiating. It'll, it'll change the way you look at the game too. I mean, even a month ago or so guys, you know, going to professional camp, we're just starting like live at bats. Mm-hmm. We have a, a big league left of you as like a pretty good fastball, like really low release, you know, but it was like his first, you know, session to live hitters. So I think he was throwing around, you know, 90 miles an hour. And um, one of the hitters stood in and there were other guys there throwing 94, 95, one guy throwing 99. But one of the hitters stood in and like his only, you know, real feedback from the day was like, oh, Allard, your fastball is like really good. You know, and and you're watching the game differently. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So you're like, okay, like, you know, above average vertical movement, low release, you know, and at that day, 90 mile an hour fastball, like makes the hitter feel uncomfortable, you know? So you kind of have to take all those things, you know, when you're communicating with the player Mm -hmm. and just say, look, like this is the feedback from the hitter, you know, and these are things that, you know, he knows, but it's still, it's just interesting, you know, not only it to, to go from kind of looking at spreadsheets and figuring out different ways to like connect all these different numbers to then watching it on the field and, um, you know, hearing how the players, you know, are talking about those things and how they communicate those things to each other, how they think about those things and then connecting all those dots. And, and that sort of leads in nicely to the next thing I wanted to ask, which is how valuable in the, I guess in the initial process we take on a client, like how much do you value like literacy within these numbers for a player? Or is that something that you feel if somebody has the right attitude, you can sort of coach them up and get them to sort of understand what they do well and the things that they want to do? Some of the best pitchers in, in baseball are the best players in baseball don't necessarily do things ideally. And to go back to the, baseball slowly been moving back from like ball flight to brain. I think such a large factor in what makes anybody really successful as a player is, is really, you know, the psychological component, their ability to focus, how they tackle objectives and things like that. Um, So, you know, as far as like, I don't think we're, you know, I don't think we scrutinize on the basis of like checking all the box boxes metrically. I think what we do well is we gain an understanding of how to optimize somebody. And then we pride ourselves on being able to communicate with them to help them reach their potential. which I think obviously uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, last question here, and I'll let you guys go. But I wanted to hear more about sort of the process of communicating with players, trainers they might be working with, and then the organization. Like how, how, does, how does a good functioning relationship between all those entities sort of flow? And I know you spoke about it before where, you know, it's heavily based in communication, but like, how do those communications even take place? Yeah. So, and I guess this goes back to what you just asked as far as like, you know, would literacy affect, you know, our, 
um, interest in being in a, uh, you know, relationship with the player. Uh, I think like, you know, a lot of people have made a big deal out of like the difference between like old school and new school. And, you know, if you really break it down, both sides are, are trying to say the same thing. It's just, you know, maybe a little bit of a different language. If anything, the technology could probably help you, you know, prove or disprove things a little bit more quickly. But if you listen to a real, you know, old school guy who spent 20 years in the dugout, you know, pitching in different roles, playing for different teams, the way that they break down certain things that are happening in the game to me is, is just invaluable because it, it shows you like where the art is in being able to, you know, transition from maximizing like skills and potential to like how you actually play the game. And we're really big on wanting all of our clients to be in a really like external, you know, flow state type like mindset while they're playing the game. So I think like the, the, to more directly answer your question, really, you know, functional relationships with players, teams and coaches and the agents or advisors, those relationships inherently combine the best of the old school stuff with the best of the new school stuff and the technology while also blending really effective communication you know, if you call some of the better teams, the teams that do a really good job with less resources or however you want to kind of look at that, if you call one of those teams and you have a question about something, you could be talking to a high up in the front office. And if they don't, if they're not an expert in the field, a lot of the time they'll just defer you to the actual expert you know, in their organization who deals with those things. So if you called up somebody and were, you know, asking, you know, about the player's release height and how that's changed over the last two or three outings, that executive would just say, hey, call so-and-so. Like, I don't, you know, that's not really my area. I don't know what you're talking about. You can call some other teams and like immediately everybody wants to be an expert and there's a lot of buzzwords being thrown around and stuff like that. And, you know, our job is to, you know, advocate for these players and look out for them. So not only do we have to kind of be like an anthropologist and like figure out how communication's working within the organization, we have to teach them those things as well. And it doesn't matter so much what buzzwords we're using to describe their arsenal or you know, what they're working on or whatever, it's more important that everybody's on the same page. And you see this with a number of the good organizations, the communication top to bottom is really effective. Well, that was a tremendous insight into what goes on, you know, behind the scenes in the game, the type of things that we should be looking at and how we should be uh, approaching everything 
Um, I really appreciate your time, David and, and, and Daniel. Um, you're always welcome back. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. You got it.